Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, let me ask you, do uh, you think that it's strange for a grown man to get depressed just because his computer can no longer access the internet? (laughs) Don't laugh. I I know that it's silly, but nonetheless, that's the uh, state I'm in right now. And uh, here's why I find myself uh, being ridiculous. Uh, It isn't that my computer doesn't work, and, uh, well, it isn't even because of all the dental work that I've got to go through this summer. It's only because my main computer will no longer access the net. Uh, Actually, I'm even embarrassed to mention it, since uh, compared to the problems being faced right now by over 6 billion people, uh, well, my problems are laughably trivial. I'll spare you the details, uh, but what has me smiling to myself right now is uh, thinking back to a conversation that I had uh, years ago with uh, Scott McNeely when he was still the president of Sun Microsystems. He told me that one day, the day would come when people would think that their computers were worthless if they couldn't access the internet with them. And uh, (laughs) I didn't tell him this, but I thought he'd lost the plot. You see, that was uh, still back in the days of Windows 2.0, and uh, the net wasn't yet widely used. But now, uh, here I am, sitting in front of this incredible machine that actually does wonders when compared to the PCs of 15 or so years ago. It's a truly amazing device. Yet, uh, since I can't get to the net with it, I'm having difficulty seeing all its other wondrous features. So, you ask, uh, how is it that you are now listening to a new podcast then? Well, uh, first I created this podcast on what I once called my good computer, the one that doesn't reach the net. Then uh, I transferred it to my MP3 player, well, I will be shortly, and uh, that thing is a little eight-year-old iRiver that the dope team gave me uh, way back when these podcasts were uh, just getting started. And uh, from there, I'm going to load it onto my seven-year-old little Asus EEE netbook, something that I've hardly used in several years. And uh, from there, I will upload this podcast. Like uh, most geeks, I find the workaround to be my best friend. But it looks like I've got a lot of work to do to get my main machine back online, uh, including either reinstalling Windows 7 or switching to the uh, Ubuntu version of Linux. However, thanks to uh, several of our fellow saloners who have made donations in the past two weeks, I'm now able to do something that's long overdue, and that is to buy a good backup drive and back this hog up before I start messing with the operating system. So, uh, hey, thank you all so very much. Uh, You have saved my sanity. Well, I guess that's uh, really the wrong way to begin a podcast, but I just wanted to let you know why these podcasts may have a few gaps between them in the weeks ahead. I guess that uh, it's because I'm getting older that I seem to have lost my patience for doing this tedious tech support, and so I only work on it for an hour or so at a time. (laughs) Then I treat myself to some more reading. In fact, uh, I've been reading so much lately that my wife thinks uh, maybe I should do one whole podcast of nothing but summaries of some of the latest books that I've read. I'll, uh, I'll have to think about that. 
But let me move now to something more interesting to you, and that is the fact that, thanks to our good friend Bruce Damer, you can now download the entire archive of these podcasts uh, from a single page at archive.org. And I'll put a link to it in the program notes, but if you want to go there before I get today's notes posted, the URL is archive.org slash details, all that's lowercase so far, slash psychedelic salon, all one word, but a capital P and a capital S, then a hyphen in lowercase A-L-L and another hyphen. Also, you might want to check out a recent interview with Dennis McKenna that my friends Al and Son have released as their June 17th, 2013 podcast on the uh, Dr. Future Show. The URL is a little long uh, for me to read right here, but I'll put a link to that in the program notes as well. And as you know, you can get to our program notes via psychedelicsalon.us. Now let's get on with this longer-than-normal program for today. I'm going to pick up where we left off with my previous podcast, and that was with the Saturday session of a workshop that Terrence McKenna led one August day in 1993. And I wish that I could give you the exact date, but uh, I can't find any record of it anywhere. I had hoped maybe that it would have uh, landed on the 11th of August, since that's my birthday, but alas, the 11th was on a Wednesday that year. So we'll just have to wait for uh, someone who was actually there that weekend to post the date in the comments section of our program notes for the podcast. So now sit back, relax, and get ready for a two-hour dose of the Bard McKenna. It's a question, I mean, which is more important to the content of your psychedelic experience? The books you've read in your life or your genetic heritage? That kind of thing. Teasing this apart, the only way we'll ever know, and this is why I tend to encourage and hang out with the technical crowd on one level, uh, virtual reality is a technology that might allow you to show somebody the inside of your head. And if I could, you know, spend six months building a virtual reality which was my DMT trip, then escort someone into it and show it, and then they would say, that's exactly what happens to me. Or they would say, you know, that was the damnedest thing. I mean, I, nowhere does that come tangential to anything familiar <laughs> to me. Well, then this would be wonderful. In either case, you would either have confirmation of a generally recognized reality or a breakthrough to an immense domain of potential creativity where every individual could create their own equally personally compelling metaphysical joy ride of some sort. Uh, it's the, I mean, I think, you know, on one level... What we're doing here is something that's never been done before in Western society that I'm particularly aware of, which is we are talking about the psychedelic experience. This is the first step toward understanding it. I guess the first step is having it. The first step is having it. But then so many people have had it who don't attempt to English it. And it's quite respectable to do that. I mean, too much has been made of the indescribability of it. I mean, it's fine to say that, but then decency demands that you go forward and describe it. You're pushing there against the envelope of language. The culture 
cannot evolve faster than the language. The language is the flashlight that shows the path. And so if we don't talk about something, race, homosexuality, drug experiences, then, then no cultural progress takes place on that front. It's like it just doesn't exist. So part of what we're trying to do here is to create a dialogue that is not necessarily politically confrontational. Too much of the public dialogue about drugs is all about whether they should be legalized or not. I mean, you can take care of that in one sentence. Yes, they should, and they won't be. So now let's move on with that. Uh, But experience, this is probably the richest domain of experience that we have. I mean, you may go on your vacation to Benares, and I may go to Argentina, and we will get back and talk about the restaurants, national parks, and museums that we visited. But far more interesting conversation could take place if I do psilocybin and you do mescaline, and then we get together and talk about the places we have seen. In other words, this psychedelic universe, whatever it is, is the major datum of experience. It's larger than this planet. Nobody knows how large it is. Uh, You know, the further in you go, the bigger it gets. We don't know what to make of something like that. That's the reverse of our expectations. Yes? You seem to use sound a lot as like a key issue. Like you were mentioning in South America, you uh, sang songs. Were those songs um, like ayahuasca songs or Inca songs or or little ditties you were doing in your own self? Hmm. They were, in some cases, ayahuasca songs that, that Don Fidel taught. And... And in some cases, just taking ayahuasca, I learned, and to call them songs, but, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about ayahuasca is that it promotes a synesthesia that's very dramatic. You seek sound, and uh, when you make it, you have an experience which is beyond English by several leaps. The, the, The experience of of generating colors out of a vibration so that you go, you know, and a chartreuse line like a neon light descends and hangs there. And then you can, you can move it off and it goes from chartreuse to lemon yellow. And then you just begin playing with this. And within 30 seconds, you're doing something that it seems to you only intelligent insects on other planets yeah. do. And it's true for everyone you know who's te- who you've talked to about ayahuasca? I think if you can come through, yeah, I mean, you have to sort of get your wits about you because ayahuasca sweeps over you, there's stomach stuff, there's waves of hallucination. But once you sort of get your sea legs, uh, you can do this. It's very clear when you're with these shamans that these performances are pictorial. And, and you know, um, the, uh, originally the active principle of Banisteriopsis capi was called telepathine. When Theodor Hoch Grünberg and those people went in there in the early years of the 19th century, they collected samples, took it back to Berlin, 
and characterized it, called it telepathine, and then it was later realized that the compound had been earlier isolated from pagaman harmala and called harmaline, and the rules of chemical nomenclature give the early discovery precedent. But it was it was called harmaline because, I mean, it was called telepathine because the tribal groups using it seemed to have this extraordinary group-mindedness. Uh, this is one of the things that I'm keen to talk about is the fact that uh, telepathy of a sort we didn't conceive of seems to lie very close to the surface in these states. When I, I think most people think of telepathy as you hear what I think, that's telepathy. That, that is not what psychedelic telepathy is. Psychedelic telepathy is you see what I mean. You see what I mean. And uh, there is a way to use voice and inflection and tonality to edge people's uh, transduction of the language experience out of the audio, out of the ear mode, and into the uh, into the visual mode. This is uh, something which is neurologically very uh, uh, fragile in us. It's as though the land is very flat and the river flows one way through the audio processing channel of the neocortex. But just a very slight shift of the inner stratigraphy and the river would flow another way. It would flow into the visual cortex and language would become a thing beheld. And, uh, and the, uh, one of the things that's so interesting about ayahuasca is that it contains DMT and harmaline and these are both brain neurotransmitters occurring in normal metabolism suggesting that, you know, there is simply a, a one or two gene mutation or the intensity of the expression of a gene already present that would switch brain chemistry toward visual processing. Meanwhile, in the culture, simultaneously, there is this tendency going on. The culture is becoming more and more imagistic. You know, the invention of photography high-speed color printing, film, we see uh, and we relate through the image much more. So I think psychedelics and media uh, and the predisposition of the neural landscape is setting us up for a kind of ontological transformation of the project of communication, yes. You know, as you're saying this, I'm observing the way that I'm listening to you, and I'm I'm seeing what you mean because through the, your language, like when you say neurological, I see a picture. It goes really fast, but I'm seeing what you what you mean. I'm not. That's how I'm comprehending you. Yes. Well, you're embarrassing me by turning the the magnifying glass upon the current project of communication, but. That's the name of the game. You know, maybe it evolves as we evolve, that seeing what you mean. Yes, I mean, one reason people have... 
Some people have criticized me because I use big words, but I've always had the feeling that if you use big words right, your listener understands perfectly what you mean. But, and I don't know how that works exactly, or it may just be an illusion of mine, but it's a very satisfying one. <laughs> it seems like, in a way, you're working with sound and, and you've got in touch with uh, that sound on different levels, but you express it in a conscious communication, which anyone's consciousness is somewhat alive, it becomes more conscious. Uh, they hear communication or understanding that all clicks right. Well, I think people, uh, you know, language is a behavior. It was acquired 50,000 or 100,000 years ago, and I think people don't use it enough. 90% uh, of spoken communication is trivial, and it's very interesting to try and use... The, the 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 descriptive blade of voice. It's like Manjushri. It's the sword of discriminating wisdom. Communication is about discrimination. It's about finely uh, uh, delineating difference. And and with this sword of discriminating wisdom, you make your way into the world. And you know. Granted, it's an image of penetration and cleavage and so forth and so on, but what you're left with then is the cognitive enterprise. Yeah, Jim. After all these years, what is it these days that would make you want to hit the brakes? <laughs> Out in the state, you mean? Well, it does this thing on me occasionally, uh, which I call going all Halloweenish. <laughs> where um, and and I just and I say you know why are you doing this to me? Uh, it's it's uh, it's scary. It's probably just my own inner demons. Uh, I ride this stuff through, uh, but I always feel like uh, you should never take the sea for granted. And the metaphor we're dealing with here is the sailing of small ships over great and turbulent depths. And, uh, and I've also noticed, you know, my God, if, a, if an iota of pride lodges in your character, it can rub your face in it like you just don't want to know from. And uh, so uh, I respect it. I fear it. It's, and the strangeness of it... Uh, Somebody near and dear to me, I won't name them, but just recently described taking ayahuasca and uh, the, the dose was somewhat low. So after a couple of hours, they smoked some DMT on top of it. And uh, with your MAO inhibited like that, this is a pretty hairy-chested thing to undertake. Don't try this at home, folks. Uh, with, your, with your MAO inhibited like that, <clears throat> it just settled in. And he said, you know, it is strange. I mean, when you get the trim, you know, when you get the tabs trimmed and you get the focus right and you can just look at it, you know, it, he said, it just says, you know, behold, if you can, O oh mortal, the essence of Tregyogmanalamaglacht. 
and you're just saying, oh my God! <clears throat> you know, once it... Because it, it is clear that it presents itself through a series of veils. And, and it's so... It's so kind to first-timers and second-timers, you know. It's like a series of Disney-esque images. And, but God, once you're into it, it begins to part the veil, and you realize, you know, that the human mind is just like the mind of a gnat falling into the sun of peculiarity. And you say, you know, how did, I mean, you know... <clears throat> and then you come back and try and talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> One, after all of your psychedelic experience and these uh, experiences of other capacities and abilities in the brain, uh, when you come back to the mundane plane, do you, have you found yourself developing the ability to use your brain in the mundane plane the same <laughs> way that you have experienced its capacity in, in a psychedelic plane? And also, do you think that all of this is a, just kind of like a the tip of the iceberg in terms of leaving this dimension like maybe a near-death experience, going, leaving the body ultimately through death, and is this all just kind of like just the beginning of that? And you seem to feel that the fear component is important to you. And is it, is it more like a fear of dying ultimately when you get too far? I think in my case it's a fear of madness. I've convinced myself that dying is highly unlikely. The madness question is a totally open book. I mean, who knows? And, yeah, and you do get into places where only, the only reassurance is that it won't last. Uh, you know, uh, as far as the tip of the iceberg question and death and all that, I, I think, I mean, if this is... I have a lot of intellectual resistance in this area myself. Uh, I was raised Catholic. I fought my way free of that, as I said, toward Camusian existentialism. And then I got hooked into all this and was just swerved back into a more spiritually teeming universe than I ever would have thought possible. Uh, It's hard to talk about. It may be that what the psychedelic thing is is that it is some kind of look over the edge. Out of, let's say, 50,000 years of conscious human experience, uh, 45,000, no, 49,500 of those years has been lived in the assumption that something survives physical death. And only in the last 500 years in Europe has this become a gradually less and less popular assumption. Uh, We don't understand what biology is. We understand some of the details of how form maintains itself, but we don't understand the mystery of the descent of form into matter. And we don't understand, uh, you know, where mind fits in to the loop of causality. Uh, So the testimony of DMT, for me, is that there is a nearby dimension teeming with intelligence that from one perspective, uh, one of the more conservative perspectives, seems like an ecology of souls. 
it seems as though you act, that, that what the shamans always said they were doing was in fact precisely what they were doing. They always said, you know, we do it by ancestor magic. We go to the realm of the ancestors. The ancestors exist in some kind of super space. But ancestor is a sanitized term for a dead person. And uh, what we're talking about here apparently is that beyond the, the train of mortal care, there is this super space where you, uh, you apparently everything is made out of mind. And so, in James Joyce's wonderful phrase, you know, if you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. Up Nient, prospector, you sprout all your worth and you woof your wings. Is that perfectly clear? <laughs> well, uh, you know, if you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked, means if you want to be transformed and reborn as an angel, you have to die. And upniyent prospector, prospector means rock hunter, as in searching for the philosopher's stone, you're a prospector. You sprout all your worth and you woof your wings, meaning you make your own body out of the imagination. And uh, uh, I don't know what this means. I mean, one of the things that interests me is the fact that we seem to be moving toward a transformation more radical than any that has ever occurred to our species before. So radical that in the interests of intellectual fairness, one of the possibilities that has to be put on the list is that we're about to go extinct. 100%. And we don't know what that means because we don't know what death is. Uh, when you look at the record of biology on this planet, 95% of, of all species that have ever lived are now extinct. This is what nature produces, are fossils of extinct species. And so then the question then is, you know, we're down here to ultimate values. Are we trying to uh, have what the Catholic Church, in, with an utter lack of irony, calls a happy death? Or are we trying to seize the levers of the cultural machinery and pull out of the power dive at the last minute and get this baby back up to altitude and sort it out here? What's going on? Uh, or are there, in fact, any controls in front of us at all? Or are we the hapless passenger in this strange vehicle that is, you know, yeah. Wouldn't it seem all the, all the soul-searching and people getting in touch with what you might call the source, that the messages will be coming down as to what you might call the way to go? Well, that's what I think. I think that... that it's, it, well, it's what I think. It's also possibly delusional, so be forewarned. But it appears to me that, that history is uh, ever more rapidly vindicating the notion that it is building towards some kind of apotheosis, some kind of uh, uh, apocalyptic apocatastasis. Anyway, something in Greek. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, that the, the people who project the, the human future thousands of years, 
they don't understand the asymptotic speed. I mean, you talk to somebody in, like, let's just take a field, uh, gene transplant. You talk to somebody who's tops in gene transplant. They tell you things which just drop your jaw. Then you walk over here to another laboratory and talk to somebody in... Uh, in uh, parallel processing computation. And they tell you an astounding thing. Well, you realize these two people don't know each other. All of this information is vectoring together and the connections are being made and it's, it's out of control. No company, no government, no religious group, nobody is in control of this. And yet there is a plan. It isn't a chaos. There is a morphology being expressed that is, uh, won't wait. And we all are simply the cells being directed into this archaeological expression of mind. Yeah. Um, when you were talking before about kind of the Enlightenment period where artifacts were being brought, displayed, enjoyed... And I'm wondering about with the time wave in 1996, what kind of cultural manifestations we might be involved in as an elaboration of that. If that's making sense or No, that makes sense. It might make more sense to other people uh, this evening. But but the answer to the question is the parallel, the parallel resonance between now and then, or, or between 96 and, uh, and the past, was the great flowering of the Umayyad Caliphate at Baghdad, which was the birth of modern science through the, through the codification of algebra. And uh, so two things to keep your eye on in 96 are the political fates of Islam worldwide, and uh, breakthroughs of a major sort in abstract systems of description, like algebra and that sort of thing. Or, or it could... Well, certainly there were technological breakthroughs under those caliphs as well. I mean, they were the great patrons. They, they preserved all this. You know, they don't get any credit. We, we talk about our heritage from the Greeks, but we never talk about how that heritage comes through the Arabs. Uh, there's a great book called How Greek Science Passed to the Arabs. Uh, yeah. You said this last night, Mixie, got, I got it straight. You said that the mushrooms said that don't worry, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> I think worry is preposterous. That was Weipo Yang, a 6th century Chinese Taoist sage, said that. Uh, worry presupposes that you understand what's going on. And I think it's safe to say that we do not have a clue as to what is going on. We can't even tell whether it's a happy ending or a catastrophe. We can't tell whether we're slamming into the wall of our cultural limits at 50,000 miles an hour or we're about to go hand in hand off to the galactic center with uh, the human soul as companion and vehicle. Uh, we just do not know what's going on. I think it's safe to say that we're approaching a cemetery break that whether you're a, a, 
horrified pessimist or a gung-ho optimist. Everybody can see that the, the, the uh, make-or-break point is coming up because life is either going to get a lot drearier suddenly or there's going to be some kind of a, a breakthrough. I don't think cosmetic management of the cultural crisis will work much past uh, the current Clinton administration. This is apparently the last go at uh, spin-doctoring the apocalypse. <laughs> no? I was just wondering how you feel about um, the technology behind Kermit's um, crisis as an artifact or a fetish of certain areas from those, you know, the beaver ivory so what do you mean exactly by the the technology behind the AIDS crisis? Well, I mean, what does it represent to us nowadays? A truth or not? Well, it, in a sense, I mean, I see AIDS as the inevitable consequence of the, the ocean-crossing airliner. You know, uh, always sites of pilgrimage were sites of disease conveyance and uh, uh, any virus worth its salt would jump into this situation and exploit it. Now as to the darker side of the AIDS thing in terms of you know was this a product of human engineering or human intent or so forth and so on that's an interesting question but in a way uh, it really doesn't matter. It's an it's a product of human behavior, and I don't mean I don't mean simply uh, sexual or homosexual behavior. I mean such behaviors as travel, pilgrimage, the wish to mix it all up. I mean, think of the gene streaming that is taking place in the twentieth century. I mean, I mean, I know a Tibetan married to an Egyptian woman, and stuff like that's going on all over the map. Uh, so there's all kinds of uh, of uh, crises. When we were a nomadic community, the transmission of disease was retarded by the fact that human groups didn't really come into that much contact with each other. I mean, when you're in a place like Terminal One at Heathrow and you just look around you. I mean, my God, you know? I mean, uh, Muslim priests, Tibetan lamas, Botswanan dignitary, I mean, and people are just swarming and swarming and swarming and using the bathrooms and coughing. And, and in these airliners, when they fly over the ocean, when they fly above 30,000 feet, they recycle the air in such a way that if there's one person who has a problem, 275 people are having their immune systems on red alert by the time you get to Tokyo or New York. Not to rave, but... Uh, yeah. Sounds, I'm not sure, but it sounds like you're talking about... I'm thinking about early Christianity, the abstract... That's a, that almost sounds hallucinatory, like a, a look back toward paradise or something like that. Well, in a sense, one way of analyzing Christ, if we keep pretty much to the strict orthodoxy and accept the Gospels and so forth, is it's a, he, he presents a shamanic figure. Uh, and the unique uh, claim of Christianity 
was this bizarre doctrine of the resurrection of the body. That was the part that was the jaw dropper. Uh, Christianity, working from the primary text, looks very much like some strange kind of biological, magical invocation of some sort. I mean, there is that amazing passage in one of the Gospels where uh, the, the three Marys, Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, and the other one, go to the tomb, and Christ is standing outside the tomb, and, and one of the women starts toward him, and he says, touch me not, for I am not yet completely of the nature of the Father. Well, good grief. You know, what's going on here? He is resurrected. He has overcome death. But he says, touch me not. I am not yet completely of the nature of the Father. Uh, I, my interpretation, I mean, it's maybe too much to get into at this point, but my notion of what religions are is that this dwell point at the end of history which is acting as an attractor for the temporal process and drawing and sculpting and shaping everything as it is brought into its light, as it were, has a kind of reverse causality operating. And uh, what, what Wordsworth called intimations of immortality haunt time like a ghost. And so if you're a Buddha, a Mahavira, a Christ, a Mohammed, you get essentially, again, it's a geometric theory. You are simply geometrically positioned vis-a-vis the object at the end of time that you become a false reflector of its light. And uh, these false reflectors always distort it in some way. It's the nature of it. It's not no rap on them. It's just the nature of it that they distort it. And some distort it horribly. A Hitler, a David Koresh, and some distort it, maybe we like to think less, a Buddha, a Mahavira. But the point is they all distort it. Marshall McLuhan said, you know, we our mistake is that we're driving the vehicle of culture into the future using only the rear-view mirror. And uh, uh, that's sort of what we do. But then each one of us, you see, we are like Christ and Buddha and Mahavira. We also have a perspective on the transcendental object at the end of time, on the divine. And we work it out in our life in our psychedelic experiences, our sexual epiphanies, our whatever it is that moves us. And I think really, well, it's just what Blake said. Uh, uh, Psychedelics are window-washing equipment for cleansing the glass of perception that allows you to then perceive the world as infinite. And also, because this transcendental object lies ahead of us in time, to know it is in some sense very woo-woo, very tricky to English, in some sense to know the future. And that this is, I think, where the existential power or the, the, the uh, uh, quality of mimashness, of realness, uh, comes into the shaman's personality. The shaman knows the future. 
And in the same way that I, as a 46-year-old man, can advise my 12-year-old daughter and have an immense kind of position of existential authenticity in her world, it's because I know the future. You know, I know that the first love will not be the last love, and I know that heartbreak lies along the way and all this. I'm wise from her perspective. Well, a shaman is a wise person, and they are wise because they know the future, not of the individual only, but also of, of the culture. And, and that's why, you know, when the TV cameras arrive in the Ecuadorian village and they boot the medicine man out of his thing, say, well, Jose, what do you think of the fact that the forest is being cleared? The usual reply is, eh. <laughs> you know, Barry. Blake, uh, as you know, also said religion and politics are the same thing. And right. This is a political uh, seminar. I've been waiting to ask you this one. I was wondering if you would entertain a question on what is, what religions are and viruses. I want to talk about the dark side of Christianity, if I could, and go get you to talk about it, if I could frame it this, this way. Uh, on psychedelics, with books, a Christianity, or I think a better word is Christianism, as a spiritual ideology, looks like a warfare, a protracted warfare, if you will, against the earth, against the body, against our very humanness. And I think we accept that there are these invisible things called viruses that attack your organic body. But would you be willing to entertain the possibility that there can be a spiritual virus that attacks the planetary body, in fact, attacks Gaia? And the reason I ask that is because you remember Porphyry, long ago when Christianity was on the rise, the Neoplatonic philosopher said that he thought Christianity was a disease of the soul. And I think Freud and Hume had pretty much proved the same thing. Well, long before the viral metaphor, somewhat before the viral metaphor became all courant, Jung talked about what he called psychic epidemics. He, in, I think, 1930 wrote an essay on the return of Wotan as an archetype of the German soul and very presciently picked up on what National Socialism was all about. Uh, well, I talk about monotheism now, and I say Christianism. Ah, well, now that's an patriarchy. interesting... And monotheism and Christianism as the apotheosis, I get to use that word too, the, in, in Western history, Western society, Christianity or Christianism being the apotheosis of the patriarchy. Well, I'm, I am, uh, I'm on one level not keen about monotheism. I think it gives a distorted map for the psyche to emulate. But I also see Christianity as a pretty radical betrayal of the monotheistic agenda. Uh, monotheism, whatever its social consequences, uh, makes sense. Uh, it's a drive toward philosophical economy. And so you get down to the idea, well, not many gods, but one god, and it works like this. <clears throat> Christianity is a Gnostic cult of physical redemptionism, 
grafted on to this uh, uh, Jewish theology by uh, Alexandrian controversialists who had a very curious notion of, of what they wanted to do. I see Islam as a reclaiming of the, of the pure intent of Judaism to conduct a philosophical discussion of the consequences of monotheism. And that all becomes really murky with the mystery of the Trinity and uh, the nature of the Father and the Son. Christianity is an incredibly exotic religion. I mean, other religions are just absolutely straight ahead. They're metaphysical systems with moral consequences. Christianity is about the absolute worship of the irrational and the incredible. You know, Origen, who was one of the great patristic uh, writers, great Christian fathers, they said, your religion is absurd. It's preposterous. And he said, credo te absurdum. I believe it because it is absurd. That's the foundation of the Western mind. All this mumbo-jumbo about reason and evidence. I mean, when you strip it away, you know, it's ultimately a faith in the absolutely, incontrovertibly uh, incredible. The resurrection, you know? And, and all three, see, the permission for this belief, it's true, comes out of the earlier stratum of Judaism where an earlier unlikely promise is made. The promise that God would enter history. That's what set them up for this later deal. God will enter history, they were told. And then, so then if you're a, a theologian of this faith, the question obviously arises, how will God enter history? And, you know, you ruminate on that for five or six hundred years, and eventually what you come up with is he will send his own son. He will send a divine manifestation. There will be an absolute union of spirit and matter. There will be a descent of the paraclete into our midst. And the idea of the Messiah is born, which is an, an incredibly peculiarly Western idea. I mean, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Mencius, Confucius, these were guys, you know. A messiah is a horse of a different feather. Uh, a, a messiah is not exactly a human being, you know. A messiah is a coalescence of historical force, of, uh, of, of great energy. So... Uh, I don't know, where are we with all of this? Uh, I mean, these are the same, I don't want to argue with the, these are the, I think there's just another way of looking at it also. These are the same guys we have to remember, the white, you know, male guys that when we see the Pope over here, we see the medieval patriarch. These are the same guys that burned Giordano Bruno, the great poet, visionary, and scientist of the state, because he wouldn't recant. Probably a stubborn Calabrian. I'm not sure about that, though. Well, but, but look at the reputation they gave him. I mean, Bruno without the pyre is uh, a, a whiskey priest uh, laying waste to the maids of Umbria. Uh, I, I, no, I mean, here is my point on this. I, I, I agree that, one, that history has been a, a, uh, a nightmare. Uh, and... If, if it could have been any other way, 
then probably there's some some answers have to be given and some debts paid. I'm saying it might have been another way if they hadn't burned all the libraries, sought to destroy knowledge, uh, to the point where in the Middle Ages, when they liber- when the Christians so-called liberated places like Toledo uh, and found these uh, Arabic writings about the, the Greek lost science, they couldn't even translate it because they didn't even have a concept of zero. It's like the barbarians won in our society. Well, they, yeah, no, they won. Would they have won if they, if they closed down the philosophical schools and didn't destroy all the knowledge? Would it, would have it have been different? Well, we'll never know because we didn't have the chance. Well, what I hear you saying is life is tough. Yes, you know, you you have to make your career choices carefully here. Yeah. Is your, is your belief in, in this one dwell point to which history is moving a form of monotheism? Is it a form of, well, I, I guess it's a form of Neoplatonism. I, I had digested all that, you know, Porphyry, Proclus, Plotinus. I do feel the, the power of the argument that when all boundaries are dissolved, there will only be the plenum. The one, you know, it has different. It's a very long, an idea with a very long history in Western philosophy. It goes back to the Timaeus. Uh, see, my idea of what, how this thing is working, is that boundaries are dissolving. If if you want to make one prediction that you can take to the bank, that would be it. Boundaries are dissolving. So any scheme that involves setting up new boundaries is probably doomed. Well, so yes, so it is a kind of impressionistic pastiche that we are trying to anticipate. The other thing is, you know, and this goes slightly more to the guts of the mathematics of my theory, but I think that time is wrapping itself in an involuting spiral where each cycle is 164th as long as the cycle that preceded it. Well, if you accept that premise, then you have a cosmogonic scheme where half of the unfolding of the manifestation of the cosmos will occur in the last hour and 35 minutes of its existence. So attempting to anticipate what it will be like as we go down the maelstrom toward the lapis at the end of history, it it can only be conceived psychedelically and wordlessly. I mean, I, I really think history is a psychedelic experience. And, you know, this old saw about how ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. If if you carry that through to completion, then all organic process ends in the big question mark of death. And uh, we individually recapitulate that journey. We each will end in death. One of the things that always amuses me is that people are so resistant to the idea of the end of the world never apparently having noticed that it's a fairly academic question when played against the fact 
of the certainty of their own death. You know, their world is going to end, so what's with all this altruistic concern about all the rest of us? We'll take care of our own apocalypse, thank you. You just need to come to terms with your own, because it's, uh, it's inevitable. Somebody had, yeah. Uh, what do you think will happen to Islam, with, you know, when, when the East hits the West and fundamentalists, and I know it's struggling to survive and to reclaim its old territories? Well, I think that uh, as, as this postmodern, post-communist thing unfolds, uh, for several reasons, Islam is poised to make the greatest steps forward since the 10th century for two reasons. First of all, because out there in Central Asia, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzia, uh, an enormous chunk of real estate is poised and rightfully toward moving toward fundamentalist Islam. If those states become Islamic states, Islam will effectively double the amount of land that it controls on this planet. The other thing is, uh, as time accelerates, as the weirdness spreads, the global networking, the simulacra, the teledildonics, uh, the virtual reality, as all this stuff becomes more and more prevalent, a lot of people are going to freak out and reach for uh, the button marked return to traditional values. And on a global scale, this is Islam. Christianity is a horror to capitalism. Christianity is not traditional values. Islam is not kidding. And I can imagine millions and millions of people alive today who can't imagine that they would ever entertain conversion to Islam, who will, before the end of their lives, uh, m uh, make it part of, of what they're about. Because there is, no, there is no other traditional system available. I mean, it's either that, that or what I call consumer object fetishism, which means, you know, the Mercedes, the house in Saint-Tropez, the Rolex watch, all of that. That's it. <laughs> Diamonds on the soles of her shoes, yeah. I don't think it, well, Judaism is not a converting religion. You know, you say you want to become a Jew, they send some guy three times to convince you it's a bad idea. <laughs> You're not going to. Uh, <laughs> Between you can have the Islam and you have Christianity, but in the society it doesn't seem there's like uh, much words of uh, what you call like the word of truth coming out of the music or out of the society. There's like bits and pieces and fragments, but there's no basic uh, like uh, word of uh, uh, it's like uh, what you might call hope or truth. You mean out of popular culture? Right, out of. There's nothing really. Maybe this, to some degree, is coming out, but there's not a lot coming out. You have fragments in music. Well, in I mean, this is why I'm trying, why I associate myself with rave culture and house and ambient music and all that, because that, you all know what this is, right? Well, see, that's part of the problem. Uh, 
no, there, for years and years, youth has just been wandering in the desert of nihilism and industrial noise uh, bands and that sort of thing. So now out of England, there is a new kind of music which has different kinds of names. I mean, it's called house, it's called ambient, it's called rave, it's called trance dance, tribal, rap. It comes out of hip-hop. It doesn't come out of rock and roll. In fact, it's quite consciously not rock and roll. And uh, it's very optimistic. The people who are 18 to 28 are the most with it generation in a while. And they are not buying into the consumer object fetishism, and they don't seem to be converting to Islam in large numbers either. <laughs> and uh, so I think that you'll be amazed and that popular culture will take a very positive turn in the next few years. There's immense energy under the surface. Most of these bands produce CDs in pressings of two or 3,000 copies. But uh, it's a very vital and alive thing. And that way it would seem they might come out with a wave of uh, conscious lyrics that are true. And like somehow in the 60s, you had Pink Floyd pop mm -hmm. up, the Beatles, all the groups were coming out, but there was a basic movement and everyone at that time could relate to those, those words. Well, I think we're just slightly premature. If the 90s or the 60s turned upside down, then we probably have to wait till 96, and that the energy is gathering. I mean, I'll show you on the time wave tonight, not that that's gospel, but it does appear that there is a kind of gathering charge under the atmosphere of, you know, this southern white boy eschaton that's attempting to be created. But when that's all over and the hard lesson is learned that, you know, Christ himself couldn't write the American government as presently constituted, then uh, I think we'll get down to a more serious dialogue. It probably involves electing a fascist president, but uh, what's new about that? Yeah. A mirror the media likes to hold up to popular cultural mass movements and what kind of distortion happens when people start looking in that mirror. Uh, how do you plan to avoid, I guess, what you could call the Timothy Leary syndrome, wherein uh, some, you allow something good uh, and just in a, a few people in the know to become trivialized, banal, and totally commercialized? How do you plan to escape the rave? Me personal? Pardon? Me personal? Now, how do you, yeah, I mean, if you connected with the rave movement, how do oh, you... Oh, well, I will pursue a, a, what I call the, the Salinger pension strategy. Uh, this is where, uh, you know, I'm going to become progressively more remote, hard to reach, legendary, and uh, <laughs> sort of just fade off... Uh, but I don't really have any complaints about the media. Uh, I mean, if I could get uh, the kind of consideration from Mondo 2000 that I get from the New York Times, uh, all would be rosy in my world. It's your friends who scare you to death uh, in the media. Uh, I think it was Colin Wilson who said when he published The Outsider that there was two ways that 
the society could uh, uh, totally destroy one's creativity. One was by, by totally ignoring you, and the other one was by recognizing you. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, you, you become a cliché. Uh, the 18 to 28 group. Mm -hmm. um, my concern is, is how, what's going to happen to them? You know, what, and that's where politics come into it. Um, well, you know, what's going to happen what to all of us? We're all in the same... Uh, doing for them so that what happened in the 60s doesn't happen where there's just like this incredible... Or being particularly aware of an incredible kind of resistance and brainwashing well, and cult snatching off people, the best, and etc. Like I think that. we don't... I don't think we want to get into a wrangle with the establishment over some life or death issue like the Vietnam War. That that permitted an incredible penetration of the underground. The great middle class, who was maybe not interested in the war, but also not interested in tearing their clothes off and smoking pot in the panhandle, they were willing to stand by and watch while uh, uh, the establishment really did a job. I think also a stealth strategy is best. You know, you don't want to manufacture 10 million hits of LSD in the dormitory on the weekend and then uh, go for the jugular of society. Obviously, this alarms ordinary people and they get... I mean, remember when Ken Kesey used to tour the country with the bus further? Well, they had a a big banner which was on the front of it which said, we have come for your daughters. <laughs> now, this is great for a laugh, but it doesn't reassure the folks out there in baboon wazoo when you roll into town. Well, and a lot of survivors of the 60s are now in position to help a fifth column within you know, all the years of guilt you've built up over how you betrayed the revolution could be redeemed in a single moment uh, down uh, the road a few years because you can uh, intervene at, at, at some crucial point. Stoning Bob Dole. Stoning Bob Dole. Dosing Dole. No, I think the Republicans, their only hope of survival is to nominate Perot, which they probably will do. Yeah, um, I wish I believed in you know your uh, your uh, writing off of fundamental Christianity, but but I, I kind of see it as such a strong irrational force that I, I'm really worried about it. And I'm wondering why you think it's well. It, again, if we when we look at the time wave tonight, you'll see that we're in a period which is it has a very strong resonance with the Dark Ages. In, you've probably noticed anyway. Uh, so uh, I think that fundamentalist Christianity is rising in its power, but that that power doesn't extend much beyond the turn of the century, that there, there is going to be a last gasp and a final bubble in their attempt to influence the political agenda. But uh, in a sense, their grip is already broken. But there are enormous battles which lie ahead. By the turn of the century, I, I don't see it as particularly 
a, a problem. It's only, you know, in America that this horrible, horrible business goes on. Europe is a truly secular society. I mean, they are just absolutely baffled that our political agenda can be influenced so strongly by what they perceive as, as crazy people, uh, you know. Yeah, rattlesnake-handling ecstatics from the hills of Tennessee. I mean, you have to go to Bengal to get stuff like that. Yeah, you said crypto-fascism in the brochure, but there's also, would you, won't you admit there's also crypto-fascism and we need to be worried about that just as much? Well, for instance, this Supreme Court decision on animal sacrifice, you know, I mean, is alarming to animal rights people. But the larger issue, to my mind, is that it's an invitation for eccentric religious practices to get constitutional protection. And the Supreme Court even re-invited the submission of the Oregon peyote case based on that. Uh, I think, you know, that... Uh, that the election was about this and that cut it how you may, those people got their asses whooped. They just keep screaming about it because they're bad sports. But, you know, the, the election basically turned into a referendum on this family values crapola that they assumed everybody would rally around. And instead, that was the final evisceration. So... Uh, I, I think they are very poor sports, but the, they are uh, not controlling the political agenda of this country. Of course, give the Democratic Party enough rope, and I'm sure they can sufficiently fumble the ball to probably get Hermann Goering uh, elected. I'm just wondering if there is in as much disbelief as I am that in the anti-papist country of Thomas Jefferson, the Pope could come here and draw a crowd that looks like the Beatle visit of the 1960s. And, you know, in the stadium full of all these people crying and tearing at him. This is supposed to be a secular society. Why does this guy get this kind of reaction from the, the American populace? Doesn't that disturb you? Uh, well, what disturbed me about the papal visit is I could see that some very, very sly public relations people are going for the same demographic I'm interested in. The, the, the way in which it was presented as an outreach to youth and how, you know, he's, he, he's in the hood, he's our guy, you know, he's my man, the Pope, my man. I just thought, you know, this is bizarre, but also a measure of desperation. I mean, I don't, I, I just think, you know, this too will pass away. Let's check the time wave. I think it has something to, more to do with the, uh, Avalone, the captivity at Avignon than the politics of Denver, I think. Help me out here, somebody. Where are we? Yes. <laughs> this is my latest pitch. My latest pitch is that the, uh, the second generation, the second generation party Christians are really beautiful kids. They've had really good, strict spiritual training for 18, 20 years. And they, they don't have anything to do with the institution or strict rules and regulations. And they have a very nice appreciation for drugs and chanting, dancing, and feasting. I think when the raids get with the second gen generation Hare Krishnas, it'll be a nice combination. 
Well, see, in a sense, the rave is an attempt to be second-generation freaks, to actually learn from the 60s. I'm, pre I'm pretty positive about... Uh, uh, well, it's just going to be a smorgasbord. You're, the evidence is going to come in faster and faster, supporting all positions. <laughs> You know, things are going to get a lot worse and a lot better, and it's all going to happen simultaneously. I really believe that since 19, from, from 1945 to 2012, we are reliving in a compressed form about 4,300 years of human history. Very literally, this is not a metaphor. And if, if you take that seriously, then we have reached 765 A.D., you know? That's as far as we've come from 1945. And ahead of us lies the establishment of Gothic Europe, the Black Plague, Newton's Laws, the Italian Renaissance, the Machine Age, the European Enlightenment, the discovery of atomic power, DNA, I mean, all that lies beyond the turn of the century. So when people are frustrated by the fact that we can't see what the transcendental object at the end of time is going to look like, I can't say, here's what it'll be like on the great day when it comes, it's because it lies literally below the horizon of rational apprehension. But that doesn't mean that when you look east, the sky isn't streaked with the blush of rosy dawn. It is. It has been for centuries. We're moving toward this thing. It has to do with the idea of human freedom. It has to do with the idea of the dignity, the inherent dignity of human beings. It has to do with the idea of everybody should have four square meals and a roof over their head. I mean, it stretches from the sublime to the mundane. It's an idea of how it should be, and sometimes it resides in the secular domain through the schemes of, a, of Marxism or even of uh, National Socialism, and sometimes it resides uh, in, in uh, uh, the domain of religion as some kind of great cleansing or the descent of the glory or the coming of the Maitreya. But uh, uh, human history is the is the outer shell of the phenomenon that's one way of thinking of it so if you find yourself inside human history then you are inside the attractor field of the transcendental object and then you just have to find where you are in the historical galaxy are you just about to escape its influence and drift off into the interstellar darkness? Or are you closer in to the core and therefore irrevocably locked and irrevocably being moved slowly but with great certitude toward the confrontation and revelation of this thing? And of course it happens to us individually with death. There's no escaping it. Uh, but then we, we choose, in the same way that we're a little dodgy about facing our own death, we're even more dodgy about thinking about the fate of the species. Uh, science has tried to tell us that human history is purposeless.
well, this is a very odd contention, because if it is purposeless, it's the only purposeless and disordered process that's ever been observed. And there it is, right smack in the middle as the sum total of the activity of the most conscious entities known to exist in the cosmos. A strange place for purposelessness to crop up with such a vengeance, yeah. Um, you talk about how the soul side of the mushroom responsible for that big cranial leap from the proto-hominids to the homo sapiens. So do you think it's possible that, that again, the psilocybin mushroom can play a role for the, the, next, the next evolutionary leap of some form? It may not be physical, but... Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I don't think I've talked too much about this because it has a sort of funny vibration to it, but sort of following Isaac Asimov's uh, style of writing foundation, foundation and empire, second foundation. If you haven't read these books, these are huge science fiction histories of the future. It seems to me you could make a case that there is something called the strophariad. It's great that this Latin word works out this way. The, and the first strophariad was established on Earth half a million years ago and lasted until 12,000 years ago. And then it ended. Then there was the historical era, the imperial era, the era of ego, kingship, phonetic alphabets, exteriorized technologies, standing armies, urbanism, architecture, hierarchical structure, forced social role-playing, so forth and so on. And then, beginning in 1953, that would be the year zero of the second strophariad, that when the Abraham uh, and Sarah of the New Order, Gordon and Valentina Wasson, discover the mushrooms in the mountains of Mexico. And then, of course, in the 70s, the brothers McKenna propagate the method for cultivation which turns it from a rare tropical endemic into a denizen of every attic and uh, cellar from Nome to Calcutta. And the symbiosis between human beings and the fungi are, is reestablished. And it's a symbiosis that leads directly back to a connection into the Gaian mind of the planet. It would be great. I mean, I'm, it's a little grandiose for me to claim it, but it would be wonderful if technology would miniaturize itself, if sexuality would generalize itself, if nomadism electronically sustained through universal issuance of power books and fax modems uh, were to come into vogue, and an entirely new... Social, isn't that what it says on the dollar bill? A new social order for the ages would be born, and we could all become an eye floating above our own uh, pyramidal database of uniquely sculpted, virtually real, personal bric-a-brac. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I think that the mushroom is, has an immense role to play in the human drama. What do you mean symbiosis? What do we give the mushroom? We give it hands. It, it has no power to manipulate the environment. It touches the environment as, 
as lightly as a... It's an intelligent thing that needs expression through human mind and body? Well, that's one idea that I have entertained, that it's some kind of thing that blew in here a long, long time ago. And it, as I was saying earlier this morning, we will come to live in the imagination. If you look at the mushroom, it looks like an organism that engineered itself that way and said, you know, let's de-emphasize our bodies, let's reproduce by spores, let's be primary decomposers, let's get out of the food chain, let's spread ourselves as lightly as cobwebs through the ecosystems we inhabit. But, and see who eats us first. But it seems to have a, a, like a database of intelligence that is transplanetary. And uh, we don't know what kind of a barrier space represents to the drift of life. We've only known about DNA since 1950. Uh, presumably, any civilization with a full understanding of DNA could design itself and create a karmaless body, an eternal style, uh, uh, an enormous telepathic capacity. So, I, you know, the mu mushroomhood may be something that we're headed for, or at least it may serve as a natural model for a new style of organic existence as the shedding of the monkey begins to be progressively accelerated. It's perfectly clear that I don't think we can go to the stars as hairless monkeys. It's just bad packaging. It was great for the conquest of a terrestrial environment. But if we're serious about taking our place in the hegemony of Galactarian civilization, then I think uh, considerable downsizing and uh, repackaging is, uh, is going to be necessary for that. And the spores offer a good, a good uh, blueprint for that. Well, I see that it's noon. Um, to your scattered bodies go. Uh, we'll meet back here at 4 o'clock, and uh, I'll probably be in the tubs part of the afternoon. I'll be giving an interview part of that time, but I'm happy to talk to you anytime I'm around untrammeled. Feel free. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, it was suggested to me that uh, maybe we should confine questions to designated periods so as not to uh, break what was perceived by some as the forward thrust of rhetorical momentum and <laughs> perceived as others by others <laughs> as the unmitigated exhibition of megalomania. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm for that. Uh, so, so maybe we'll do that uh, in that which I was sorry to hear that because questions are such an easy way out. Uh, let's talk a little bit about any loose ends of this morning, and then I'll talk for a while, and then we can, and then we'll entertain discussion at the end of that. It. Uh, is anybody disappointed? Are we not getting to your favorite subject or somehow slighting some side of it that you're afraid isn't going to get 
its full treatment or anything to any comment on what went on this morning. Anybody? Yes. I was just I was just uh, talking to some people in the bookstore, and I was aware that my experiences are not. I, I thought everybody had pretty much the same experiences. That with me and mushrooms, I have profound teachings and teachings of things that I what that I wasn't consciously aware of, you know, and like giving really good advice and sometimes instructions and as well as just kind of awarenesses and. So I don't know if, if this would be boring because I know you've done this a lot, but I would like to sort of hear a little bit of spoken stories. So you like stories? Or I mean, I, I agree. I just never know. You know, I'm always trying to calculate. There's such a limited number of hours. So sh is it okay to swap stories and never mention the Paleolithic or... What gets sacrificed for what? But I, I agree. I think stories are great, and I don't, certainly don't discourage them. Uh, as as uh, you know, as you were talking about before, the intelligence in these substances, um, the intelligence that seems to be in the substances. Which I so, so that's what interests you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's what interests me. Uh, what I keep going back to is how confounding it is. How confounding it is to rational expectation that um, a plant can, exactly as you say, I mean, it gives you specific advice. It can color coordinate your wardrobe if this is a major concern of yours. I mean, it has no snobbery in what it will deal with. It's... It's eerily like a companion. I mean, I can't, no other, even psychedelic, does that. It's in a sort of a category by itself as an intellecty. I mean, on DMT, you encounter these self transforming machine elves or the gnomes of hyperspace, but these things are, are drenched with the peculiar and the outre. The, often in the, in the mushroom thing, it's very approachable and friendly and manageable, at least on a certain level. I mean, it's like anybody, any personality. Uh, it has depth. Uh, I never know. I mean, is this news to people or is this ho-hum and we've been over all this many times before? Uh, the mushroom as mind, the mushroom as historical, uh, something which is penetrating human history, uh, changing uh, what it means to be a human being. Uh, in, in, in my book, um, Food of the Gods, I argue that it actually shaped human organization out of primate organization that are... are uh, bizarre situation in nature, that of being half primate and half archangel, is explainable only if you assume some extraordinary catalytic agent coming into our environment 
around the time when we were descending from the trees and becoming omnivorous and switching over to becoming nomadic grassland animals. And, uh, you know, the human brain size doubled in two million years. The most extraordinary transformation of the major organ of a higher animal in the entire paleontological record. This is an extraordinary, would in any circumstances be an extraordinary challenge to the theory of evolution. The fact that the theory of evolution was generated by this very organ under discussion makes its inability to explain it particularly embarrassing, if you follow my logic. So there was some extraordinary catalytic action that in terms of the geological record was like a bolt of lightning. A species, a, a primate, an arboreal creature transformed into a grassland forager suddenly, you know, stands upright, begins to perform symbolic activities. Uh, our, our peculiar relationship to our sexuality and to dominance hierarchies, I believe, has to do with the fact that as primates, we are genetically scripted to have male dominance hierarchies. But for a very long time, the presence of psilocybin in the human diet pharmacologically interrupted that maladaptive behavior and create an, an orgiastic social style that was very strong glue for group consciousness because men could not trace lines of male paternity under those circumstances. And so a very old primate behavior was for a couple of million years perhaps overwhelmed by a dietary factor. Then fairly recently with the drying of the African continent, the mushroom religion and the society that had gathered around it and the social and sexual style that had gathered around it collapsed. And these ancient people around 10,000 BC migrated uh, in, a, in a, yet another wave of migration out of Africa into the Middle East and established the early human stratigraphy uh, uh, that we see in the Nile Valley and at Jericho and other places. And that's the fall into history because in the absence of the mushroom, the uh, old primate program re-emerges. And it's, when, it's right at that moment as we break with the African grasslands and as we become uh, sowers of cereal grains across Asia Minor, it's right at that moment that a whole series of maladaptive institutions spring into being simultaneously. Male kingship, standing armies, urban concentrations, uh, canonized law, uh, suppression of a goddess religion in favor of a, of a religion of, of male warrior figures, the age of Gilgamesh, all of the agriculture, all of that comes at once. And it, I think it represents a, a, a break with the Gaian mind 
previously maintained through this quasi-symbiotic, shamanic, psychedelic, mushroom connection, a break with that, and a profound alienation then from the natural world that issues into history. I mean, Gilgamesh, for crying out loud, the earliest piece of literature out of that area that we have is a story about a guy who gets a hold on the loyalty of the shaman and co-opts his loyalty and gets him to help him cut down the world tree. They go off into the wilderness, Enkidu, the shaman figure, and Gilgamesh, the wily king figure, and they cut down the world tree. This is the earliest piece of literature out of that area. So, uh, and, you know, just to leave no stern untoned, uh, (laughs) in our own liturgical tradition, a story of that antiquity is the whole Bible story of Genesis, which is the story of a drug bust, essentially. (laughs) A a whole hassle about a forbidden plant, a plant that conveys knowledge, that is, the owner of the garden has decided this knowledge is not for the human beings. And then the woman, the woman, the gatherer, the one who represents the old religious strata, the now being suppressed heretical fungal connection, the woman eats of the plant, then she corrupts her roommate, the landlord goes berserk, the lease is canceled, and uh, in the final fade on that story, uh, what we get is, uh, and God set an angel at the eastern gate of Eden with a flaming sword that they might not find their way back. Well, that's simply an image of the, of the desiccating African sun driving these people out of the cradle, the Saharan cradle of, of this mother goddess, psilocybin-based, nomadic, cattle-centered religion, which was a kind of style that had arisen there and flourished for 100,000 years. And then, uh, you know, the fall into history is real we are like the children of a kind of a dysfunctional relationship. There really is a trauma of some sort in our past. History really is a kind of pathological bereavement because you know we were dropped on our heads 12,000 years ago and we've been like trying to sort it out ever since. It explains to my mind our fascination with drugs. Uh, why, you know, it is true that many animals, yes, you know, elephants trample down fences to get to rotting papaya and butterflies hang out at dishes of sugar until their little legs are clawing the air. But human beings are of a different order when it comes to addictions. I mean, we physically addict to several dozen substances, psychologically addict to dozens more, addict to behaviors, political ideologies, each other, artworks, you name it. I mean, people go bananas in some cases if deprived of any of these things and show all the symptoms of heroin withdrawal, you know, insomnia, palpitating heart, uh, irritability, irrational decision-making, delusion, uh, so forth and so on. This is because 
what our, you know, the extraordinary confluence of events necessary to call us into being as a thinking species was this kind of quasi-symbiotic relationship that evolved between us, cattle, and fungi, where uh, the fungi became or is, for some mysterious reason still to be discovered, a pipeline into a, a, a mind, an entelechy, which we can only image as feminine and can only associate somehow to the environment, to the ecosystem. This is the Gaian mind. This is what the goddess really is. I mean, the goddess is uh, a... A, a, a network of connective intelligence that is operating on this planet. But what ba and I think it, it's not in its essence mysterious. It's simply that what the psychedelic does is it dissolves boundaries. And one of the boundaries that it dissolves is the boundary between community, which is a behavioral boundary maintained by the convention of language, and therefore not as set in concrete as you might wish to be congealed, uh, between that boundary and nature, there comes, you know, a dissolution. And then there is, lo and behold, not the barren howling atoms of democracy and materialism, but instead nature, pulsating, minded, alive, caring, threaded into the human enterprise, willing to advise you on your fashion choices and investments. Uh, and it's an astonishing thing. And we were the great celebrants of that in this Paleolithic world. We were its chief acolytes, if you will, because our glory was the neocortex the language processing capacity that we brought into the game because we had been primates in the canopy of trees, you know, with a, with a pack signaling repertoire at the level of dogs or something like that. And then under the stimulation of the glossolalias brought on by ecstatic doses of psilocybin in this context of, of orgiastic, boundary-dissolving sexuality, this mystery was connected with. And it is exactly the same mystery that you hit at five grams in silent darkness. And it's still mysterious. You know, Thomas Aquinas, Heidegger, uh, they don't really shed much light on this. We haven't, in 25,000 years, learned anything that makes this trivial or dismissible. It still raises the hair on the back of your neck. It still uh, feels like the true indwelling of uh, uh, a metaphysical essence. It turns out that all the careful deconstruction of living nature by materialism was in vain. I mean, uh, nature is alive and minded. I don't know what this means. I myself, you know, as I sit here, not loaded particularly, can, <laughs> cannot, cannot grasp the implication 
of, of a minded nature. It means that we're living in a world much closer to the spirit of early Greek mythology than the spirit of our own materialist philosophies. And I suppose that's why there's an argument for being a courant in your philosophical biases, because from places in our cultural canon like uh, quantum physics and uh, chaos mathematics, places which are very like early Greek philosophy. I mean, uh, Heraclitus speaks for chaos and uh, I suppose Parmenides or, or, or Thales speaks for uh, some of these other points of view. Quantum physics, the discrete nature of the world. Uh, uh, these things, if you can assimilate them, are very close to what is perceived with psychedelics, but very, very far from the models that are being... Uh, inherited from the past. And at the very center, you put your finger on it to bring it back around to that, that at the most confounding center of this mystery is the presence, you know, the voice, the companion, the ally. I mean, it's crazy. It, it literally is impossible within the context of the cultural expectation. And yet it's real. I mean, this was what got me on to all this years and years ago because somehow I had friends early on who said, you know, these plants talk to you. And I just thought, you know, my God, they're losing their marbles. And I would take LSD and smoke cannabis and do these things, and but it never and have all kinds of strange experiences. But I never got what this thing was about how the plants talk to you until I got to psilocybin, and then it's just like, uh, but you have to invoke it, you know, you have to speak to it. It doesn't speak until spoken to. They're shy. They're like fairies. Hell, they may be fairies, who knows? <laughs> they, you know, you have to coax it out and then it will just come forward. It's the damnedest thing. I mean, as I sit here, a man of 46 earning a living by telling people how you coax fairies out from under <laughs> invisible bushes. I wonder myself uh, at what the cultural crisis has come to. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, it's true. It's, it's as true as anything, and it's more confounding than most things. I mean, I don't know what it means. I've been through the possible explanations. You know, young, autonomous psychic entities escaped from the controlling influence of the superego, yes. But when you're talking to a gnome, saying that to them is absurd as suggesting to a Javanese person that they're an autonomous portion of the psyche that has escaped from the control of the ego. It doesn't wash. Uh, I think that somehow we, unlike shamans, we haven't taken these, in, these worlds seriously enough because we, haven't, we have a, uh, a materialist basis you know, one of the things, this is maybe a point worth making and then I'll stop raving about this, but uh, one of the things that quantum mechanics has secured is the necessity of the observer uh, for the ongoing unfoldment of phenomena. And to me, that means that hallucinations have undergone an ontological shift of status. 
hallucinations are now part of reality. They are, uh, they are primary data for theory making in the same way that the movement of the stars is or the changing of the tides. Uh, quantum mechanics secures the mind as the necessary agent in all process. And so hallucinations are no longer off the table or out of evidence in terms of trying to understand what's going on uh, with reality. Yeah, that brings up the question I've heard posed before, and sometimes it's on people's minds and they don't want to say it, and that is, why should people believe this Irish raving tall tale of human evolution? I mean, after all, uh, I, I have to admit, I am awed by your intellectual prowess. I mean, I figure, and everybody knows the guy talking about stories, a guy that can convince his girlfriend to bring his lover on a trip down the Puchimayo could talk a whole generation into anything. <laughs> well, Your powers of persuasion are fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, are you saying... What is your question? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm, I agree. I think the best idea will win. In a sense, you're right. The person who can tell the best story, that story will win. But best story is a complex concept. It also means, you know, best formal mathematical underpinning. You get high points for that. M most people come up rather short in that department. Uh, uh, I'm, I come out of the Berkeley tradition of all-night conversations. I think often in arguments you don't make progress till the ninth hour. Uh, and I'm willing to debate all this stuff. As far as my theory of evolution is concerned, first of all, you might suppose there is a large and established body of theory that has to be exploded you know, what the straight people say about how we doubled our brain size and got culture and mathematics. It turns out, no, they haven't got a clue. Uh, there is no big theory which has to be blown up. The best shot the straight people can give it is they say that we were puny and small in a world of the large and the lumbering, and so we learned to throw rocks with great precision and accuracy. They would essentially make the big league baseball player the pinnacle of human evolutionary development and then say, and then once we'd done that, we had so much brain capacity left over that the plays of Shakespeare and modern mathematics were no problem. Well, this seems, I say, this is hokum, you know, and that uh, obviously... Uh, they've done these experiments where they raise identical rats in environments which are very rich in experience and then poor in experience. And the ones raised in the rich environment when, hang on folks, sacrificed, uh, exhibit in the brain slices a much more complex arborization than the ones that, uh, that were in the learning poor environment. So I think, you know, that one way of thinking about these psychedelics, and especially the psilocybin family coming out of these mushrooms, is that they were uh, catalysts for the human imagination. 
they catalyze cognitive activity, whatever it is, counting your toes, painting on your friend, uh, playing around in anthills, uh, making funny noises in your off hours, uh, arranging the roots you've collected in different categories. I mean, it just promotes cognitive activity, which you then take back into uh, the group, yeah. Well, is there a different effect in the catalytic effect between the fresh mushroom, let's say, that the protohomers picked and ate right off the dung patties and the dried mushroom? I don't, not, I don't think particularly. I think, you mean like, is the spiritual intelligence present in the dried stuff? Well, the, the fresh ones definitely are kickaroo, just simply because the, the psilocybin isn't bound up in dried cellulose matrix. It dissolves much quicker. That's probably what that's about. One of the things that I think happened, you know, it, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand this scenario of transition from what I call the mushroom partnership paradise to the historical bummer that came down when all that blew up. And I can imagine, you know, as Africa do, grew drier, it became, uh, the mushroom would have, perhaps over millennia, slowly faded in availability. It would have, instead of being all the time everywhere, it would go to being seasonal and then to be only in the rain shadows of mountains and stuff like that. And I'm sure a certain amount of uh, cultural specialization would take place, i.e. you would appoint shamans to be the people who take the mushrooms in order to keep the connect open. And the other thing that would go on is there would be anxiety about preservation to try and keep a supply available for human use. Well, perversely, the most obvious method of preserving mushrooms or any other delicate foodstuff in that kind of an environment is to desiccate it in honey, put it into a crystalline honey, and the sugar will draw the water out of it. This is why you hear about the Romans eating hummingbird tongues pickled in honey. It was because the honey made the whole process possible. The problem there in our scenario where we're talking about how drugs shape culture is that honey itself has the perverse ability to become a psychoactive substance, to ferment into mead. And if you've ever been in the tropics and experienced aboriginal honeys, they have a much higher water content than what you're getting at the A&P. And they would quickly, they quickly do ferment. When you're offered honey, it's often a completely baffling and horrible thing that you can't really associate to what you know at home. Uh, the, and as an example there of how cultural, drug, how drug styles shape cultural styles, alcohol, the, the fermented meads and early cereal beers of the ancient Middle East, they create a completely different set of cultural values. Gone is the orgies, gone the connection to the guy in mind. Now what you have is an increased sense of verbal facility and, uh, and a lowering of sensitivity to social cueing. 
the kind of behavior you see in singles bars on a Friday night. Uh, and a, a lot of, uh, you know, negative imprinting goes on around alcohol, or in the past has gone on around alcohol. Uh, and this thing I was talking about earlier, this, the itch we can't scratch, this fascination with drugs, once the con umbilical connection was broken into the, to the Gaian mind in this African situation, then it was just a series of, of insufficient substitutes. Uh, the early beers and meads, uh, opium, appears to come into the picture of shortly after this time. Cannabis, we have no idea how old it is. To my mind, cannabis it is the closest substitute for the glue, the social glue, and provides the same kinds of social functions that, uh, that the mushroom may have provided. And it may have later, across Central Asia, played a, a somewhat similar but subsidiary role. And then, you know, the vast... We, we have explored nature frantically in search of intoxicants of all kinds. This continues to this day. The, the old-style primate dominance hierarchy re-emerged, and what it brings with it is moral cruelty is what it brings with it, and an insensitivity to suffering and a willingness to sacrifice others for grandiose political schemes, and a willingness to let dogma rule over common sense, and so forth and so on. And 10,000 years of letting that run rampant, and you know, as an engine of cultural destruction, it can't be beat. The, the pygmies in the rainforest are no match for it, nor is anybody else. After 10,000 years of letting that run rampant over the landscape, here we are. Uh, and strangely enough, then, in the, here we are gathered for the deathbed scene of Western civilization. And as every text is published, every archaeological site excavated, every occult system explored, every drug injected, so forth and so on, comes the news from ethnography this minor branch of anthropology, that people are taking these drugs, these plants in the rainforest, and making extraordinary claims about its ability to transport you into other dimensions and heal and so forth. And it's like the Ouroboric snake taking its tail in its mouth, and the energy just runs around the circle. Uh, history is somehow redeemed, I think, by this return to the archaic. The question of what history was for, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure, but what caused it, I'm pretty clear on. It, it's a pathology, or it's a series of behaviors that are a response to the tremendous trauma and stress of the breakup of this symbiotic relationship with nature. It's like a crisis of adolescence. Or, or a temporary psychosis or something like that. And now, strangely enough, we have gained through the peregrination of history a vast knowledge about forbidden and dark subjects, the control of matter, 
the control of the genetic units of life itself, the building of instrumentalities that can survive flight to the stars, so forth and so on. But to this point, this has all been in the service of some weird Faustian uh, conqueror complex. Now all these tools have to be put at the service of a kind of ethos of planetary caregiving and ecological maintenance. It has all fallen into our responsibility. In a sense, we have come of age, you know, child of the earth. Now here is the inheritance. And, uh, you know, there are a few dents in the Ferrari from some of the uh, little uh, episodes we took before we settled down. But it's all ours to make of what we will. And, and then behind that, this, you know, what is it that Andrew Marvel says in his poem? Always at my, uh, the, the grave's a lovely, quiet place, but none do there, I think, embrace. For always at my back I hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And of course, behind this level I'm talking about is time's chariot hurrying near. The fact that rising over our world is the black sun of the incomprehensible event of our cultural transformation that has been built into our cultural mythology, you know, since... Abraham hesitated to slay his son. I mean, this is our thing, the finite apotheosis of, uh, of the world. And we've now all these integrate, un, as yet unintegrated, but soon to be integrated technologies, control languages, understandings are, are leading to the transformation of the human self-image. And really, the psychedelic experience is just inoculating yourself for the onslaught of transformation that is going to be rolling toward you through 3D. It's not going to come entirely through drugs, you know. It's going to come through the culture. It already is. It's batshit weird out there, you know. You don't have to have a, no, a bone through your nose to pick up on that. Did you have a question? I've read a theory that primates rose from four legs to two. Uh, exactly why, I don't remember, but <laughs> once up in this higher air, it, uh, the brain enlarged and prospered more rapidly, and um, the number of neurons in the brain increased so that we now have a hundred billion neurons and that was the real origin of civilization. The complexification. And no, no, no mushrooms. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, it is true that uh, if you've ever observed even squirrel monkeys, which are a fairly prime, uh, primitive primate, squirrel monkeys, would, if they want to run quickly, will rise up off their front legs. Uh, the, there's a lot of question about bipedalism and when it came in. Some people think it didn't come in until we leave the trees. Uh, we were a complex animal, there's no doubt about it, when we were in the arboreal canopy. But we were probably no more 
complex than the prosimians that exist in the in the world today. The you see the real challenge for evolutionary theory is is not that the human brain could evolve at all. That seems reasonable and somewhat inevitable. But the speed is really shocking. Uh, and a transformation of a major organ like that, when charted in some other animal order, it occurs on a scale of 50 million years. In the human beings, it occurred in a million and a half years. And if you're just going to limit yourself to the rules of ordinary evolutionary theory, then when you look at that transformation of that major organ in a million and a half years, then you have to say there was an extraordinary selective pressure operating there that apparently operated on no other species at no other time in the history of the earth. And I, my, I think, to generalize a bit here, that... Uh, the undiscussed dimension of evolution is diet. You see, if you study evolution without great depth, what they tell you is that uh, mutation is acted upon by natural selection and that mutation is caused by gene breakage and the gene and modification and that gene modification is caused by radiation, cosmic radiation reaching the Earth. Now, that part of the story is a gross simplification. Gene breakage is actually caused by stress of all sorts, and incidental cosmic radiation reaching the surface of the Earth is only one kind of stress. Another kind of stress is chemical toxins in the environment, especially chemical toxins in the, in the diet. And so if you have an animal, that, uh, a species which comes under nutritional pressure, it has two options. It can either go extinct or it can begin experimenting with its diet. And if it begins experimenting with its diet, there's many a slip before it gets it sorted out many exposures to toxic and poisonous substances or quasi-toxic substances that uh, skew the ovulation cycle or affect uh, expression of body hair or uh, cause the retention of juvenile characteristics. So when an animal is undergoing dietary transformation, it's in a a situation of extraordinary mutational flux. An example that I think makes this perfectly clear is uh, sweet potatoes are a big part of human diets in many tropical parts of the world, and many primates are keen for sweet potatoes. But orthonovum and birth control drugs like that are made from those same sweet potatoes, from Dioscorea vines, which are grown on huge mechanized plantations in northern Mexico. That's where the birth control hormone comes from. Well, now, here's the scenario. Uh, a hungry band of foraging primates comes upon a big patch of looks like our favorite food, sweet potatoes. And everybody chows down, and it turns out it's jammed with these hormones, and lactation, ovulation, 
menstruation, fertility, uh, fetal formation, all of these things you just shuffle the deck, folks. You know, you don't know what you're going to get out of that. And, and if the animals are sensitive enough to the situation to stop eating it, well, then it's just a localized catastrophe. But if they persist, they will be mutational or extinct within several generations. So I think, you know, I'm suggesting that at this moment when we left the trees, there was a great deal of dietary experimentation going on. And, uh, and uh, psilocybin was a factor in there. You know, looking at us and trying to understand our relationship to the other primates, one of the things that evolutionary primatologists have always noted is that human beings exhibit what is called neoteny. Do you all know what this is? Neoteny is the preservation of juvenile characteristics into adulthood. We all do this. If you look at our skull proportion to our bodies, it's an infantile proportion when you compare us to other primates. We look, human adults look like the fetuses of other primate species. Our hairlessness that's a fetal and juvenile characteristic in other primates that fades in adulthood. We retain it, and uh, so forth and so on. This is the kind of thing that we see in other species that are reacting to toxic episodes in their earlier evolutionary history. And we are a funny-looking monkey, you have to admit, and ugly suckers, too. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I mean, thank God the estrus reddening of the bottom was suppressed before we got down to the business of civilization. And public masturbation seems to be under control, but otherwise, if you've ever looked at those prosimians and the proboscis monkeys of Southeast Asia, they're just like very ugly people, you know. <laughs> anyway, enough about that. Yes. Any, more, any other predators that were uh, likely or subject to happen upon these psilocybins and incorporate them into the same conditions as, as we find as primates? Well, no. Well, possibly. I mean, see, the thing is, animals tend to specialize their food supply. An animal will not explore a new food unless it's under nutritional pressure. I don't know if there were other animals, you know, the being pushed out of that same environment, a sort of parallel family that if the primates hadn't seized the golden ring might have gotten somewhere, I forget what they're called, but the raccoons. The raccoons have a pretty advanced optical system, a pretty adaptable hand, a reasonable level of socialization, uh, and, uh, you know, it would make a cute movie, I suppose. Uh, uh, what? Bears also have been suggested as one of the lines from, from which an intelligent species might emerge, yeah. What's the natural history of, of these mushrooms in the wild? Can they just decompose eventually, or insects eat well, they persist. They are not the kind of uh, mushrooms that auto-digest. You know, some kinds of mushrooms just turn into slime. 
the, most of the psilocybin mushrooms, especially the more palatable ones, persist. And, uh, well, you should understand, the, the mushroom that you see, which mycologists call a carpophore, is just a small part of what a mushroom is. A mushroom is really a very fine network of spider-like material, cobwebby material, that's under the soil. And it can stay like that for decades, no problem, growing, vegetatingly propagating itself the way a, a houseplant is vegetatively propagated. No sexual reproduction involved there, just an individual getting bigger and bigger. Last year, you may recall, they reported some of these mushroom clones that were acres in size and weighed more than a sperm whale and were, in fact, the world's largest organisms, were these enormous fungal individuals uh, sleeping in the Oregon forest for uncounted eons, dreaming, you know, nightmarish dreams that were... Uh, or... No, I'm sorry. What? I know, the mind boggles uh, to the point where I lost my thread in, <laughs> in the thing. Oh, the natural history of the mushroom. So then what I was saying, the mushroom is something is like something that happens when this fungal mat, this mycelial network, gets in the mood for sunbathing and, and sexual thrills. And, and so then it undergoes... Uh, it undergoes dicaryotic self-expression. The, the genetics of fungi are somewhat complex to the point where I never really have understood it myself. Uh, they're not like you and me, let's just put it like that. And then it fruits. It fruits. That's what the carpophore is, it's, or it's also called a fruiting body. And in a Strophaeria cubensis mushroom, a single mushroom can shed up to three million spores a minute for six weeks. And so, you know, it's a truly astonishing uh, deal. And they're at the bottom of the food chain. They're primary decomposers. If you were a, if you were a Buddhist with a hyper degree in molecular biology, you were trying to design a karma-free body, you would have to become a fungus because they are the only blameless members of the food chain because they exist on dead matter. They don't uh, destroy anything. They don't live off living material. And uh, the, they, the spore is this tiny microscopic capsule of genetic material that is surrounded by an organic layer of material that's as electron-dense as many metals. And I maintain that these spores, in fact, percolate through space, uh, that they can survive the conditions of extraterrestrial environments. If you want to store mushroom spores, you essentially store them in liquid nitrogen. It's about as outer space-ish as it gets. And you can calculate you know, if a single mushroom sheds three million spores a minute for six weeks, <laughs> I'm telling you, there are a lot of spores being shed into the terrestrial environment, and then they percolate, and some percolate out into the outer atmosphere where they become involved in highly energetic events that actually detach them from the terrestrial 
uh, environment. And, and I think one of the easy predictions you can make, it's like a knockoff, and yet it would be a, the cover of Time magazine. Uh, it's perfectly obvious that space is no barrier to certain viruses and spores, and that a, one of the future revolutions of biology will be, this will somehow be proven. Uh, it's always puzzled me, and some of you have heard me talk about it, <coughs> that psilocybin is an indole which is phosphorylated in the four position. This is chemist talk, but uh, the important thing for our discussion is it is the only four-substituted phosphorylation of an indole on this planet. And that's very weird. Why? You know, the way it would expect chemical evolution to work is if you have molecule A, then you should find molecule sort of A and nearly A and A plus one and A plus two. But here's a molecule just boing. It has no near relatives. If you, I think, you know, one kind of mentality looks for extraterrestrial life by sifting for radio signals with a telescope. Uh, I think if you, one way to look for an extraterrestrial thumbprint would be to search make a thorough molecular category of the mole uh, categorizing of the molecules on this planet to see if there's anything that looks like it blew in from somewhere else. And psilocybin would be a strong candidate. What is it doing in some 40 species of mushroom? There are hundreds of species of mushrooms which do not contain psilocybin, proving, therefore, that psilocybin is not somehow a necessity for fungal existence. Well, then, if you believe that evolution operates with a certain economy, then why do these 40 species furiously dedicate a major portion of their metabolic budget to making a metabolite that seems to have no purpose? You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I wasn't going to make any comments after such a long program, but I can't resist just this one. Do you, uh, you remember, I guess it was about halfway through this talk, where Terrence said, People who are 18 to 28 are the most with-it generation in a while. Now, need I point out that since Terrence said that in 1993, this means that he was talking about the generation whose age range is now 38 to 48. In other words, the age group of the majority of people seemingly in charge of things right now. So, uh, hey, you middle-aged ravers, <laughs> why don't you stand up and be counted? You know, there, there are a lot, and I mean a lot, of people who are really on your side. They think like you, and they're either younger or older than you, but they uh, have either a past or prime like me, or they're still trying to find a position or work their way into the society somehow. And I have no idea of what you can do to... Uh, begin making a difference for the seven generations that will be following us, but you do, I'm sure of it. So uh, let's get going, as uh, Terrence often said, and not a moment too soon. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Be well, my friends.